Thank you for downloading from Digital Mindfulness. This is episode number 35. This episode of Digital Mindfulness is sponsored by Semantica Research, a leading digital advisory company helping communications, social media and marketing professionals to make better and more informed decisions from digital data. My guest today is Chris Dancy. You may have already listened to my previous interview with Clint Finley, and together they created Mindful Cyborgs, a movement dedicated to helping people place themselves in airplane mode and not their devices. Chris himself has been dubbed the most connected man on earth, and we'll get more into that in the show. But he's been featured in Wired, the BBC, TechCrunch, Mashable, and much more. And he now heads the Showtime series, Darknet. Chris focuses on the intersection of healthcare and technology, and has earned the nickname I previously gave you by attaching more than 700 different sensors to his body to track everything from his calorie intake to his spiritual well-being. I hope you enjoy this show with Chris Dancy. So we've been doing a lot of work on the show about the ways that jobs might be changing, certainly in the next 10 years. But is that something you believe? Do you believe that jobs really are going to change fundamentally in the next two year, next 10 years? Absolutely. I mean, if I, in 2008, I did a presentation um, where I talked about what life looked like between 2010 and 2015. And then I did 2015 to 2020, and then 2020 to 2025. I did five-year segments. It's online. And, uh, and people laughed at me. They laughed me off stage. And I remember saying at one point during the presentation, do you really think someone's going to pay you 60,000 quid? Do you think that they're going to pay you that you know, 60,000 quid to send email and create Word documents? No, they're not. And mm. you know, everyone has a college degree. You know, every creative is a struggling artist. Everyone on Twitter is a poet waiting to happen. You know, everybody's like in Hollywood and it's 1952 and all the stars have already, all the spots, the movie's been filled. Um, So we really need to look at what that means. And I I can't imagine there are many businesses through, you know, the many things you've mentioned, you know, automation, but just data is going to put people out of work just because, they don't understand it or they don't know how they're being measured. And the companies that, that scare me the most are the ones that are selling services that rely on data but don't really consider it to be a fundamental piece. I mean, no one's going to be able to buy an Uber if they don't have a job. No one's going to be able to rent an Airbnb if you don't. But then again, Airbnb and Uber, if you turn that coin around, you'll see that it's actually you know a, a, the precarity, precarity economy. So yeah, for every single person who's driving an Uber or, or, or renting out their house, there's someone doing those two things, but usually they do both. So there's a fundamental shift that we, everything we do, we've turned into this big trade economy where like we're just trading stuff and we're so afraid that you know, everything's gonna go away. The biggest groups so, on Facebook right now are swap groups, right? For, for things that people have bought. <laughs> this, this is amazing because you're, you're talking about now the um, the sharing economy. Yeah. Aren't you? Yeah. Well, it, well, the sharing, they call it a bunch of things. Yeah. The sharing economy is a symptom of the economic collapse that already happened because the only reason people are sharing their stuff is because they're so afraid they can't make ends meet. So then if that's the case that 
um, that jobs are going to change. Do you think then that the institutions that we have, the political and um, social institutions, are good enough to face the challenges we have coming up? We're not in. We're not a, after 2008, we, we stopped understanding employment because of the economic collapse and then people couldn't find work. So there's this new class of underemployed and then people who've given up. That was kind of a new class of people. So while employment in the United States, at least, seems to be really well, that's great. But it's, 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 it's like a life support. No one can actually leave their job and get another job. Right. And. And I know people who, you know, if you're if you're literally 35 to 55, you are so, so in a tight spot right now because, you know, you're not willing to work for what people who are 20 to 35 are willing to work for. And you're not close enough to finishing. You haven't trained for another career. And, you know, just talk to a developer. I mean, they're the reason they're jacked up on caffeine and, you know, it's because they can't get enough done. Even reporters, you know, Clint from from Wire were saying the other night, you know, all these big publishing houses are closing. So, you know, mm-hmm. if you want to figure it out, just ask yourself one question. How do people function without money? That's the only question we need to answer mm-hmm. about the coming unemployment because things will still get traded. You know, the economy will still happen, just we won't be using money. So what is it we're trading? And right now, most of what we trade and most of the valuation isn't money, it's data. And we don't really talk about, well, then how do you value data? And this is where you get into the contemplative nature of information, because if whether it's biological data or environmental data or it's or temporal data or location data, all of these fit in different segments in your mind when you think about them. And they're all different values to an employer, but they also help you in the digital experience. So when you log into Netflix with your email address, it's got a bunch of information about you. But if you log into Netflix with your Facebook, it's got actually more information about you and your likes and stuff. But if you could all get a Netflix with, you know, just your location data, it'd know like you're on vacation. It would know more about you, right? So there's certain things that just data does that we call personalization now that would actually enhance a transactionless or cashless system. Um, and those things, I think, are the things we need to put through the filter of mindfulness and well-being. Uh, because if we treat data like we treat money, we're going to be in a worse boat in 20 years than we are now with money. And do you think, Chris, do you think that's the way it's going, that we're just naturally leaning over to treating data the same way that we treat money? Well, yeah, we're treating it worse right now because we don't even think about it. At least when my mother started writing checks in the 70s and stopped using cash, my father made her, you know, you have to write out $1,000. You just couldn't write $1,000, right? And (laughs) there was a carbon on the check and you had to put it in a register. I mean, there was this checks and balances. Now, Data is just given indiscriminately. And if you go to Boots and, you know, they ask you for your, your, your loyalty card, you know, everyone has a loyalty card because the credit card companies stopped selling your identity information to those merchants in 2003. I mean, the machine mm-hmm. fixed itself between 2003 and 2005 where data became separate from cash transactions. Before that, cash was ID and ID was cash. What you bought was who you were. Oh, look at your nice house. That's who you are. Uh, Oh, you've got a black card so you can buy these types of things. And money kind of was the filter from which you accessed goods and services. But as soon as they unbundled data from that and we started getting things like high frequency trading, all the things that led to the bubble and the collapse in 2008, we started actually saying, well, data, that's okay. I'll just give you my data, right? You know, here it is, you know, put a sensor on my car, you know, monitor what I do at home, you know? And this isn't the type of surveillance where, 
you know, you know, if you go back to the England and, and London, you know, in the 80s, you know, with the cameras and the CCTV everywhere, this is worse. This is very, because this type of data is personal. It's very intimate, right? And I think what Apple's doing right now by standing up to the United States government saying, we won't give you, you know, we, we can't unlock lock your phones. But the reality is it's not even a question. You know, everyone's like, Apple's, Apple's being so brave right now. Apple's not being brave. They can't do it. And if they can do it, we're screwed. But then we've got a whole other problem. And I'll, I'll stop my rant here because you've got D-Wave computers at Google now for two plus years. D-Wave computers are quantum computers that have been around now for at least five years, but they've been installed at Google for two years. In quantum computers, once we get that, that'll just break encryption in, in seconds. So it's not going to really matter. So we really need to focus on more of this digital mindfulness or kind of what I like to call the post-privacy society and say, what does it look like if we just collapse this privacy bubble and we just, you know, we say, okay, data, you don't have any power over me and just pull the plug on it. Now, Chris, just very briefly, I want to go way back and talk about this moniker that you've been given as the world's most connected man. How did you get that moniker? Can you share um, that story with us? Um, so really, it was a bunch of things, but it actually started out that, and, and it's funny if you go back and watch the interview from 2012. I did an interview in 2012 with Bloomberg out in San Francisco, and I had lost like 50 pounds at that point. And it's really awkward to watch me because I'm walking around and I've got all my gadgets on and the guy was just like asking me all these questions. But during that interview, he said to me, you're like the world's most surveilled person. And, and I'm like, well, I never really thought about it that way, but yeah, sure. Uh, that's, that, that works. Um, and it was a great interview and end and everything. And that's how they pegged it. Like the world's most surveilled person was they tagged it. And if you watch the video to this day, they don't show the very end, but the thing I liked at the end was Corey. His name was Corey was the reporter. He, at the end, he says, Chris was a really nice guy. He's actually very mindful. And I just thought to myself, that's like, oh, he gets it. Shortly after that 2012 interview, because it was the wired article and then the, that interview and then a tech crunch piece, um, it was someone at the BBC or the Wall Street Journal put up, is this the world's most connected man, question mark. And, and they got that because they took the world's most surveilled man and just changed it um, just slightly. And then since then, like everybody who does a piece on me picks it up. And I don't know if it's true in Google. I'd love for you to tell me at some point. But I know if you go into Google in at least the United States and you just put in most connected man, I'm like the, the first hit. So it's stuck and I don't like it, but it's, it, it, you know, some people would kill for that type of <laughs> notoriety, I, but, you know, it doesn't <laughs> okay. matter to me. So you, you don't like, you don't actually like it then? Uh, no, just because it sets up a lot of unfortunate precedent for people who come to see me speak or anything else. They expect, you know, this robot or, you know, Neil Haberson or Iborg, you know, they expect like, and it's hard to let people down, you know, it's like, but I like the fact that I, I introduced them to impermanence really quickly. Like, oh, I'm sorry. That's your idea of me. I get to ruin it now. So um, I've had that name now for almost four years. So I've had four mm -hmm. years of people meeting me and saying the same thing every time. And that's, oh my gosh, I like you. You're not what I thought you were. So I've had four years of constant feedback that the name doesn't work for people. And so in some ways, it's like whenever I meet someone, I know that they're going to at some point in our relationship say, you're nothing like I expected. And they're basically just using, you know, a moniker and, and like painting all of their bias onto me. 
And then I have to work real hard at just being myself. So I eventually get to, to this bridge in every relationship where they go, I like you. And I go, thank you. You know, I didn't think, and you always get the same next thing. I didn't think I would because of the connected thing. So it's not so much that the demonization of technology, other than I get to watch everybody I meet go through the exact same journey. It's like a groundhog day for identity. Do you also think as well that because, like, I mean, we, we talk a lot about mindfulness on the show, and do you think that like you've almost, like, you, like I was saying, that you've almost got this digital mindfulness on you and it's invisible and people can see not only you watching them like through yourself and your consciousness but also yeah. they're being recorded and there's this kind yeah. of um hate the phrase but this kind of meta thing going it's almost watching that you know them watching you watching them and i think i've developed a, a socio-proprioception i think i can just sense people's awareness now and i think i actually watch people change in front of me all the time um, and it's just, it's become way too easy to reach into people's heads and do what I need to do and continue why I'm saying simultaneously having a conversation. Um, only because I know from, you know, seven years of recording myself and seven years of watching people respond and seven years of knowing how people have been shaped by technology, you know, in essence, I'm just a giant gadget who's learned to be human again. And these people are just becoming giant gadgets. So I'm just like a developer from the future, <laughs> um, which is very much kind of a kind of manipulation. Code is manipulation. Um, and I am just coming to terms with the ridiculous amounts of responsibility that I have with this kind of ability. And it's, it's, it's overwhelming some days. So I just, I have to be alone just because I don't want to hurt anyone. With Remember in the- X-Men when the guy takes off his mask and he like, he rays go everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I have that. <laughs> and ask anyone who's met me. <laughs> they, they just know right away. And I sometimes have to phrase quite, and it's really hard to talk to me because you have to phrase questions like, did you notice this? And I totally know, like they did, right? But And everyone has this to some degree and we're all getting it simultaneously because we watch each other use technology and we technology gives you feedback loops. So we now people respond. So now we all know, I mean, you ever try to pay for groceries? No one can like talk to you. If you people answer your questions before you, I mean, everyone's super fast. Everyone's on the super fast clock. So just working around that clock and short circuiting people is really easy. It's just for me, I've just, I'm always two or three steps ahead of that. And sometimes I do it, even an email, you know, I'm sure everyone does this. I don't know why we don't talk about it more often, but people can sense how people are feeling in email. People can sense text messages. You know, there's a pattern to how often someone responds, how they respond. Do they use emoji when they use emoji? Do they, do you see the bubbles when they're typing? Do they not see the bubbles when they're typing? Do they have the rubber seat on? Do they not have the rubber seat off? What time of the day is it? Where is it? You know, did they send a picture? They haven't sent a picture. Have they done a selfie on Facebook lately? They haven't used to do selfies all the time. There's a, a just, a just hyper connected awareness. But I think when you get into actual proprioception, digital proprioception of all of us, and you can sense populations, then you become more like, you know, the professor in X-Men who can like sense all the other uh, uh, X-Men out there. And I think that's kind of where I feel I have this weird ability right now. I mean, I do it all the time. I do iPhone readings where I say, give me your iPhone. And I look at the people's iPhones and I tell them about the arrangement of the icons, what apps they have and what they have turned on or don't have turned off. And 
people just lose their minds. Like, oh my gosh, you know, and the people standing with them, are friends are like, how do you know, you know, my friend so well, you know, my friend better than I do. And I go, no, your phone does. And I just paid attention to what your phone's telling me. So it's kind of wild, but again, I think it's one of these, let's talk about this. I think therapists, therapists and doctors should be asking for people's phones. I, I absolutely, absolutely agree. And, you know, there's only one other person I'm talking to seriously about this, but I absolutely think that you're right. Um, but going back to, um, I remember I've spoken a lot about this and how the digital now, if you like, like in, I guess in this, the relentless now. Not even so much the spiritual. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's completely relentless, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, if you read any kind of mindfulness text whatsoever, we're told that the, that the present moment is extremely important. This is where we need to be. This is where we need to stay. Don't go into the, into the future and don't go back to the past. But the digital now is, it's everything right now. And kind of putting yourself in the moment right now is incredibly overwhelming, wouldn't you say? Well, yeah, because the digital now is the closest we get to enlightenment. So, um, you know, there are the the three marks of existence uh, in Buddhism are um, impermanence, suffering and egolessness. Um, Mm. And the digital now is literally impermanence because it's changing every single moment. Um, Egolessness in the digital now is absolutely true because you become anything you put a filter on and anything you can shape a message through. Um, and uh, the suffering is real. We just call it FOMO or fear of missing out. So the digital now is kind of what you work toward in, in kind of Buddhism, except it's real time. What's missing is kind of the quantified selflessness. Um, and there are four uh, kind of immeasurables, um, love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Um, and love is like wanting others to be happy. Compassion is like wanting others to feel free of suffering. Uh, so I, I don't want to get into the whole Buddhism 101 lesson here. But um, uh, ultimately, if we kind of say, if you can't measure love or you can't measure compassion or joy uh, or equanimity, then, then how do you start to measure, you know, how, how does that relate to the digital now? Well, because you create experiences that make you feel connected to someone else. So a perfect example of this is there's an, there's an app called Insight Timer. Uh, and it just measures your sitting time. So you just say, hey, just give me 20 minutes on the, on the cushion. And you meditate for 20 cushions. And when you get done, it says, hey, you did 20 minutes. And you've done 20 minutes before, which is kind of shamification. But right underneath that, it says, and you just meditated with 1,221 other people in these countries. And it shows you a map. That's a great way of showing you connected to other people or, or the immeasurable of compassion. And I think that's just one of those just golden examples of good design, Mindful and digital all kind of showing up in the same place. So I've got to ask, as the world's most connected man and somebody who's got, who had rather 700 or over 700 senses connected to them, how did you feel once you started to achieve your goals and you were able to view things like your spiritual well-being as well as your physical well-being? I mean, is the word inspired... um, an appropriate enough word to describe how you felt or was it something more? I, I think it's, it's really hard for me because I'm just coming out of a period of, you know, really deep contemplation about what I went through. And a lot of that contemplation led me to believe that what I experienced was terrifying. Um, you know, it's one thing when you, if you quit smoking, you, you lose a couple of friends. Um, 
if you change your diet, become a, a vegetarian, you lose a couple of friends. Um, but the reality is if you change as much as I changed, you lose everything. You know, people who are fat, who get thin, one of the things that we don't talk about a lot is, is this kind of, you don't recognize your body, you kind of have this body dysmorphic disorder. Um, so, I mean, so I guess inspiring, yes, now, you know, 2016, February, it's inspiring now, but right, you know, to, to, for the last two years, it wasn't very inspiring. It was horrifying because I realized nothing was, nothing was sacred. Nothing, nothing could escape the gas grasp of suffering and impermanence. Everything was going to change. Even if I didn't want it to, even if I stopped tracking, it would start to change because tracking does one thing. It shows you how fast things move. And impermanence is just, I mean, kind of digital mindfulness at its essence is your ability to navigate time without judgment or bias. Um, and those are major things because bias allows you to, to navigate. Judgment allows you to navigate quickly. Time is what you experience when you have judgment and bias. But when you remove judgment and bias, you don't have time where you start to actually suffer what we would call kind of this ego, ego death. Um, and that's, a, that's really hard because, you know, gosh, my steps are different today than they were yesterday. Gosh, my sleep is different today. And was, you know what? It's been that way for years. It's going to be different every day. Every day until I die, it's going to be different. I'm going to die? Yeah. Well, shoot. Are these numbers telling me I'm going to die now? So digital mindfulness is just a really good dose of you're just so temporary. And I hope you're okay with that. I hope you're okay with your life's real short because that's what it is. I completely understand just how important the understanding of impermanences but at the same time biologically and also in a digital setting we also have homeostasis and we're always looking for security in that happy medium if you like yeah, so, I, so I always think of homeostasis as like the top level right and then because that's like uh, the medium that's what the body does automatically and then just like in buddhism like the, the body and the mind right and the mind actually works through neuroplasticity right so Homeostasis is the body coming back into check. Neuroplasticity is the body learning something new. Um, uh, and then you've got epigenics, which is environmentally, and then those two things together, you can actually reprogram your DNA. So there's kind of a machine that happens when you actually work the mind and those neurons, the body and its need to be in state, and then the environment, and then how you rewire the genetics and the mind to actually then work back to get the homeostasis. Because homeostasis is changing to your point and it's balancing every single, you know, every moment, but it's balancing on the new set of parameters. So with, with this whole um, idea, I've got a question here about ambivalence and, um, and I really want to read it to you. Um, and I, it's kind of, I guess it all comes back to meaning, meaning, because I really want to know how meaningful being, like, you know, having a greater sense of yourself through the digital, through digital data was for you. And particularly, I'm really interested about this whole idea of ambivalence. And mm. that because you could see yourself changing um, day to day in moment through to moment. these digital machines. Yeah. yeah, like, I mean, I'm just really interested to know because this is why people buy these wearable devices, right? They'll, that's why they'll buy their Fitbits. They'll, because they think, you know, if they can see how many, they can track how many calories they take or how far they've run, um, then that will encourage them to do more. Well, yeah. And but um, I'm wondering how it made you feel. 
Well, it's like like everyone else in the beginning. It's like you know, it's it's like a shot of Jägermeister, right? It's just a shot of awareness. Like, okay, look, like I can see that I haven't done that. But you don't get better by counting steps. You get better by taking them. And people get really caught up in like, well, if I could just quantify everything, I'll be able to do it. Well, no. The first thing you do when you quantify everything is hurt people with that information. So look at what I didn't do because of my day. So what was wrong with my day? So the act of counting is like everything you shouldn't be doing with data. <laughs> because all you're going to do is like use it against yourself. It's just like everything we work against in mindfulness, right? So it's like, so, you know, that's why I like to say quantified selflessness. If you go back and listen to a Buddhist geeks interview I did from years ago, uh, you know, they called it quantified selflessness. And I think, you know, for me, it was good. You know, I, I learned that real quick, but then, you know, I also then, you know, gaslighted, you know, gaslighted myself a little bit. So like, okay, I would use it sometimes and then turn it off and use it against myself and then turn it off. I just don't think we had the bandwidth cognitively to use a fitness tracker with any type of ability to be okay with it. I mean, we use it and everyone's on a fitness tracker when they're end of life. If you're laying in a hospital or you, your terminal, everyone's got machines and tests that are running on them every day. Everyone's a quantified software in the last stages of life. But I think to move that forward, you need to have the other thing that you have at the last stages of life, which is a little bit of, okay, this is it. This is how it's, this is how it's ending. Um, I just don't think those two can go there. But as far as ambivalence, I mean, I ran into it like 100 miles per hour and didn't think twice about it. And that's probably why I was so successful and scared and freaked myself out as much as I did. I mean, the Showtime special is hard to watch. I mean, you just, I sit there and say, you know, data makes us lonely. I say that, right? And I say, if you, if you watch this interview in five years about people wearing and using technology, you'll think, why didn't we do something? And people but, will. But, but like you say, this whole idea about um, even loneliness, I mean, it's, it's one of the great paradoxes of our age, isn't it? We're more connected than ever. But at the same time, particularly in developed metropolitan cities, there's an epidemic of loneliness. You know, loneliness is one of those things that, uh, you know, suicide is at epic record levels right now uh, in North America for white men between 15 and 55. Um, uh, drug addiction is at all time high, uh, you know, and they say, what's the war on drugs? What's not the war on drugs? Um, we forgot, I think, what made us really good at being human. And that was other people. And right now, technology makes things easier. It's easier to buy something online than it is to go to a store. But when you do that, you're missing the interaction with another person. There's only one thing that changes you fundamentally every single time, guaranteed, and that's another person. Everything else won't affect you. You need another person to change you. It's the only thing that Darwin called it evolution. Right? It's just like, you just, that's, that's the only way it works. And while technology has made things much easier, it's removed people. Now, some people would say, well, people are there, but they're there differently. And that's true. But it's, it's, it, what it's done to our evolution is it's kind of changed it. So our need to, if you've noticed, I mean, and I, this is really easy to prove. There's more road rage. There's more anger. There's more hostility online. There's more pol you know, polarity on topics online. There's just more, there's more of a duality in everything. And that's just the further you get away from having to be and integrate with another person, the more you'll see it. 
when I go to the store now, the, the, the cashier always says to me, now, is it credit or debit? Put your, is it chip or pin? Put your pin in. And they bark orders at me, right? Mm. I can't do anything without feeling like someone's wanting me to hurry. Now, that's just me, right? And I know a lot of that comes from my own kind of perception of life. Um, but I notice when I listen to someone now, and I know, Lawrence, you must have experienced this. You'll look in some people's eyes and you'll see them grasping to go faster. It's yeah. like they are hurling through space. And then you can just see the absolute agony to be as talented as the machines they use. But doesn't that come back, though, would you say, to a corporate culture that we have? Yes. That, and this whole yes. idea of netiquette, right? Yes. That, like, you know, I know that over here, for example, with our health system, the NHS over here, that doctors are not rated on, or hospitals aren't rated on how many people are better, but they're actually rated on, you know, how many people they're able to see. But if I can see them very, very quickly and I can just tick them off, um, then I've seen them. And then my score will go up because I've seen more people. But this is the problem with quantified self, quantified business. We don't know how to measure what we care about. So we care about what we measure. We don't know how to measure what we care about. So we care about what we measure. The problem is not the counting. It's the attention. And we know from mindfulness, the attention is all you got. And when you get good with mindfulness, I hate to even be that simplistic with it, you learn, okay, I'm not going to beat myself up around that. Which means if you only see 50 patients, not 100, you go, okay. You count to forgive. You don't count to change. You focus on your breath to forgive. You don't focus on your breath to be calm. This bullshit dialogue around Buddhism uh, that you know that we've infused with pop culture with people just being peaceful is not what it's about. And I'm just, I'm going to go to the mat saying this will change because right now you've got people just you know becoming very mindful and doing all of this stuff and wearing apps and getting gadgets and all the things they're doing and they're not any happier because yes you're being more still yes you're being more contemplative but you still have to go out in the real world. You still have to deal with other people and those people aren't. <laughs> so the only way through it is to go, what were you missing during all that? Were you actually saying it's okay now that I freaked out? Is it okay that I just had road rage? Cause that's, that's pretty mindful, right? The first thing is you like notice yourself having road rage, right? But when you get to steps where you're just like, okay, that was, I'm, I'm going to be okay with that. You start to create space for it, but you have to give it permission. You have to reach out to yourself, give yourself a hand and say, it's okay. You're, dude, you're having a bad day. And, and I'm not, that doesn't mean you forgive yourself or you, you excuse your behavior. I have people three years ago, I have friends in England, a real lady I love a lot named Tessa. She's saying, Chris, you're not any happier because you're, you're meditating and you actually seem more upset all the time. I'm like, I, I completely agree with you. And I'm aware of it too. And it got me so sad. I'm like, well, this isn't working. I'm becoming worse. No, you're waking up. <laughs> Everybody wants to dream. No one wants to an alarm clock. But, you know, mindfulness is just an alarm clock for hate. Oh, look, I'm hating. I'll go back to sleep, right? <laughs> so, Chris, one question that I did want to pose to you is the idea of um, emotions and why we do run away from them, and particularly anger. Why do you think that there's such a widespread um, allergy 
towards really kind of feeling and interrogating our anger? Well, they're the we run away from them because, it, in my opinion, they're the, they're the easiest emotions to interrogate. So if I were to say to you, Lawrence, I'd really like you to interrogate joy. You'd go, well, that's, that's hard. Right? You can't see joy because joy actually doesn't feel groundless. Joy feels grounded. But we know <laughs> that groundlessness is the root of these things. Anger, depression, sadness are, are literally groundless. You are spinning, clinging, and freaking out. And it's hard to interrogate groundlessness because you're moving. It's like building an airplane in midair, right? So I think we run away from it because we don't see the opportunity to appreciate it, I tried to explain this on Mindful Cyborgs once. The problem is you, you, as soon as you come to terms with hate or anger, you have to come to terms with joy or, 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 or happiness. And to come to terms with them means you have to know that they are not real either. And nobody wants to take that step. It's easy to say, oh, I've come to terms with joy. It looks like this. These are the numbers that make up joy. These are the settings. These are the, this is the music. These are the people. Okay, but you still haven't addressed the problem, which is that's not going to last, even if you could make it happen all the time. Like that, that thing is not, that rule is not, not, not a, that's out of bounds. So you can't, can't make things stop. So, you know, to me, you know, anger and, and depression are kind of two, two, two sides of the same coin. And I, I interrogate them, but I use a lot of perspective. I mean, I just, uh, I always just try to take my, remove any bias. Like, okay, is it raining and I'm mad in the car? Because, like, people drive crazier when it's raining. Am I late? Is there a temporal bias? Okay, yep, there's a temporal bias and there's an environmental bias. Is there a biological bias? Did I not sleep? Yep, there's a biological bias. So halt, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Um, and as soon as I start peeling away the biases, you can actually interrogate hate a little bit more for what it is, right? That person's black. Oh, wow, I'm a racist. No, you're not a racist. You have an inherent bias and you've pulled enough back to see it. It doesn't make you a bad person. It makes you a damn aware person. Let's, let's, let's be happy with that. But no one wants to do that. That's, that's very ugly. It is. It's, it's really messy, really, really messy. And then, of course, if we extrapolate that then to the digital realm where, because all of the processes you've just been speaking about are very, they're internal. It's very difficult for, to to look at people and see that, um, to see these processes going on. But online, you can see all of this. And yeah. even the sensors reflect reflect these emotions that we of back to us. Yeah. Um, and I'd, I don't know, I mean, how, and again, was this one of the reasons why you said that once you started doing this, like you flipped out kind of like at I yourself? Did. Oh yeah, I lost my mind. And I probably still have lost it. I mean, but the, the, you know, the really cool thing about this is you actually learn exponentially faster. So there's actually a Moore's law for awareness and, and just, just straight up intelligence that happens once you flip that switch. Because you do start to just dissect everything with great kindness and great you know, compassion. But you know, when you see people online, you see those behaviors that you just talked about that you can quantify. Your mind naturally wants to put them together and arrange them to say, this is, this is angry for Lawrence's Instagram. 
Um, and sometimes that's the lack of Instagram if you normally used it, right? So what I find profound is how people are using digital and online to actually create voids in awareness. So Snapchat, you know, is this kind of ephemerality that's happening with a lot of data uh, or people who take, you know, Facebook vacations or people who take, you know, um, you know, no Fitbit, you know, you know, hiatuses, you know, by removing the data, they're actually creating a whole nother set of data for people to, to look at. Because then when you actually go back, what were the conditions of which you went back for? Um, and, you know, surveilling yourself at that level, or at least being aware of it, everybody is, nobody talks about it. Uh, I mean, they're starting to, I mean, there's a lot of comedy sketches now around, you know, Pamela Anderson just did a brilliant skit or a brilliant video on, on YouTube this week where, you know, she, her lot, her, it's basically me, right? Her life is just perfect. She's got the perfect body, perfect everything. And she just cannot become, she cannot feel okay with her life. She's like, everything's fine. She's meditating, like, but she still feels not connected. And at the end of the film, she, you know, it's a little seven minute film. She finally like jacks into everyone else. But you know, is that really the answer? <laughs> Do we now need to like evolve, you know, together? I just, I don't know. At some point we have to stop pretending we're machines. Do you, do you think that we can? Do you think that, you know, perhaps with, with the machines or with the data, with this um, enhanced awareness, do you think we can um, become enlightened together? Well, I, I've said multiple times through the years, there is a singularity that Ray Kurzweil talks about. He talks about like that machines become powerful enough that they wake up. Um, I think he's absolutely right. I think there is a, there is a singularity, but I really think that singularity is humanity. I think humans are going to get to a point where they can have so much access to their own lives, so much access to their own history that they are going to be forced to address bias. And at that point, you know, when history is no longer written by, uh, the victor, when history is written, everybody in real time and searchable, then people are going to have to come to terms. Uh, with um, with uh, this awakening, and this awakening will be abrupt. You know, I they'll you know I think there'll be a lot of. It looks a lot like PTSD now. Um, but but again, I I don't know again what it's going to take to get people to talk about is there a digital PTSD? You know, and are we are we suffering from it now? I, I, I absolutely believe we're there. And then if you layer on just the psychological part around the technological unemployment that we're starting to see, hands down, the biggest crisis since mankind, since, since plagues. You know, Chris, this, see, this fascinates me. And particularly as um, I think you and I tweeted a little bit about this, but just understanding the way that um, people's emotions can be manipulated when they use things like social networks or, um, you know, you can actually um, affect people's emotions through fiber optic cables, which is, which is astonishing. And so this whole idea of linking it to this, this kind of digital PTSD, this is not something people are talking about. And I've read really robust research, which says, for example, if you're in a good mood, but you see that one of your friends is not on the other side of the world, like they're, they're kind of saying, oh, it's rubbish, it's a rainy day, or I've just been fired. You will feel <laughs> what they feel, yeah. you know, by what they kind of put on their social networks. And that's extraordinary, isn't it? Because well, we don't... You know, 
in the history of, of my of my evolution, one of the things I think people will notice was I was I went off Facebook twice. And I didn't stop using Facebook. I just stopped having friends uh, because I was being tainted by them. Their chocolate oh. was getting in my peanut butter. And my, my friends actually had a real problem with it because they said, well, how can I keep up with your life? I'm like, well, you can follow me. Well, I don't want to follow you. Okay, then what you want is you want me to keep up with your life. And guess what? I can't. Why not? Because what I'm finding that I'm doing with your life Beth, who are, you know, insert friend name here, is I am not talking to you anymore. And then I'm waiting till you cross my mind. And then I'm picking my phone. I'm putting your name in the search box. I'm going to your Facebook page and I'm catching up like episodes of, uh, you know, you know, <laughs> lost, right? I'm just, I'm catching up on your life. I don't want a DVR relationship with you. And I don't have the ability not to treat you like an information source that I can pause and play or fast forward. So for the for both of our sakes, I'm going to unfriend you. That doesn't make any sense. It will. It will. Call me. And even and and even I know that people when they see their other friends that have contrary opinions and beliefs to them that they didn't mm. know about, you mm. know that their friend is, for example, a closet um, homophobe or a racist or whatever. Um, you know, this is really shocking to them, but not only that it's shocking, it affects them. It affects them emotionally. And the way well, that, um, um, and you're right, I think from an emotional perspective. Everything they believe is blown you, out of sorry. the water. Everything they believe is blown out of the water. Just, it's, it's really interesting. Like this whole, like, for example, um, I work with a lot of um, um, journalists and online journalists and part of, there's one person I know and their whole job is to look at um, hate videos or videos to do with like th say things like extremism or whatever mm. and I said like do you even do you go to counseling or anything like that and she mm. just looked to me as if I was absurd um, but <clears throat> for me I was thinking if I was looking at videos or content like that all day every day um, mm. it's something I would be concerned about but well um, in the United States we've had, a, we've had an, we've, in the United States we've had an epidemic for 30 or 40 years of firemen and police officers who have higher rates of abuse because mm -hmm. to that very fact, I mean, they go through IRL <laughs> saving lives and killing people and all the things that, you know, those professionals do, and they don't have those types of support. I mean, it's, this is a real phenomenon, but your friend who watches hate videos all day, I mean, something's going to happen. <laughs> Chris, do you think then this is, I mean, this is another question I have, but do you think then that technology reflects back to us the difficulty of the human condition? Yeah. It, or, do you think it's, or do you think it's that? Well, you know, it's, it's in its essence, someone actually texted me today and said, how would you define technology? And I said, anything that extends your humanity. So, I mean, that, I mean, that worked really well with a rock or a stick or fire or wood or housing or clothing. I mean, technology worked really well with extending our humanity up until probably right around the industrial age in which we are actually started extending like massive populations of humanity. Now we're at the point where the technology actually works faster than our ability to comprehend how it's extending us. So what we're suffering, I hate to go back to the Buddhism, sorry, but what we're suffering is this kind of constant impermanence. Like everything has changed just differently than it was one day. 
I mean, everybody's losing. I, okay, so there's certain symptoms I think they're just real easy to see. You know, people who open up a new tab and they forget what they opened it for. Or just the level of forgetfulness is really high. I, I, it's kind of scary, I, you know. Everyone I know is putting everything in, the, in their phones. Like, I a friend of mine the other day, I tweeted out, she's got alarms on her phone from midnight until midnight, every hour reminding her to do something. So she's had to oh create a, a temporal GPS. Like, I need to do this, and I need to do this, and I need to do this. We used to call that a calendar, but she actually needs something yelling and beeping at her. <laughs> so I just, you know, it's cool and it's funny that we've got all this, but I, I, where's kind of the healthy dialogue around, is there another way your life could work without having something buzz and beep at you every five minutes when you forget something? Or, or do we have to get to the point where cognitively we are so atrophied, our, our, our muscles are so weak that we need to have everything done for us? And if that's the case, the few people who still want to do things are struggling. See, now, I th kind of going on from this, because this leads really nicely on to the discussion about contemplative computing and um, calming technology, which is different to calm technology. And do you think, Chris, that we will be getting to this stage um, in the near future where we are designing um, interfaces or technologies that... Um, that don't need to beep at us every five minutes. They don't need to flash and um, um, kind of kind of divide our attention up forcefully like that. Do you think that will actually d design things that are more mindful? Absolutely. Contemplative computing looks exactly like food labeling did in the early 80s. All right. So some people did it, some people didn't. It wasn't mandated. But food labeling got better and different and more laws and more registration happened. And for better or worse, by the late 90s, you know, food labeling was, a, was a, something we all knew. By the early 2000s in parts of the United States, they were forcing people to put food labeling on menus, right? So you actually knew what was in it. Um, and simultaneously, you had the schism happen where while food labeling was getting more aggressive, um, you had the rise of stores that actually were doing anti-labeling. So like, if you eat healthy now, it's all about how many stickers your food has that says no GMO, gluten-free, right? It's all the things, it's all the no's on a bottle, right? Um, so it happened, it just happened and then flipped over and only the most affluent can actually eat now in any way that's not going to like, you know, you know, affect you in one way or another, depending on where you stand on that spectrum. Technology is the same thing. So we're starting to talk about, well, what is technology and, and, and how do we, you know, how could we design it so it's a little bit kinder. Unfortunately, just like factory farming, so we, we were doing, food had to be labeled because we had so many people on the earth in 1968, we had about 3.5 billion people. Um, you know, when the, and when the farming industrial revolution happened, uh, you know, in, in the 40s, 50s and 60s with machines, and then, then we got into agriculture and gen, genetic uh, 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 changes in, in seeds and things. So we, we solved one problem, like, okay, we can feed all these people now. But then, you know, the rise of McDonald's, you know, in, in the 60s and early 70s and, and, and fast food, the fast food culture, at least here in the United States, was a direct result of, okay, we've got the massive amounts of food under control, but now we don't have the time under control, right? So you saw a whole nother or industry. And then that's when you got the food labeling and then kind of this value stuff. And this time got crunched. So 
one problem always creates the other. I mean, I could draw this really easy, by the way. Um, but now we're in the same kind of time frame where we basically have the fast food version of technology. So it's easy and it's everywhere and everyone's using it. And we're, we're, we're just now starting to talk. This is why we started the show off talking about is now the time? This Is this the year? Yes, it is. And we're just now talking about, okay, how would you design this? Or, or would you pick a product, right? You know, is there, is, there a, is there a hippie culture for technology, right? Just like the hippie culture kind of did the food labeling and, and the kind of organic stuff. And it's happening, right? It's just, it's Buddhist, it's other people. It's people who are, you know, unfortunately detoxing, uh, you know, digitally detoxing, you know, all the other kind of bullshit names that go with that. Um, but it, it's, it's, you know, it, it's, but this is, this is ground zero. I mean, this is the time where you need to get in and say, okay, what is contemplative technology and how do I apply it to an email? Right. Can you write a contemplative email? Because that's a good start. Right. Get rid of your massive email signature. Right. Get rid of fonts. Right. Keep it short. Um, put something really beautiful in the, in the subject line and at the closing. Uh, send a photo when you can. People love pictures. Uh, remind someone why they're important. You know, the, the act of taking time to write. Is, 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 you know, I use this app called Dabble Me. I used to, it used to be called something else. And every day I get an email from myself from the past. And it was like, you know, 21 days ago, you said this, or 3,221 days ago, you said that. And I had to re- reply to it. And then I write down what I'm doing, like just an interview with Lawrence, blah, 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 blah. And what I found over the seven years, I've used this email service where I get emails from the past, then I reply, and then they come back at some point, I don't know in the future, is I actually ended up having to be nicer to myself because I knew I was going to have to deal with, like just the first oh. three years that I wrote down all my problems, I had to deal with them when they would come back. And I'm like, oh my gosh, my life isn't that bad, right? But when you talk that way, you just keep talking that way. But what it ends up doing is making you go, oh, I have to deal with the future. So maybe I'm going to say something. So if you start dealing with people over just a very simple temporal thing, like in the future, if they were to see this email again, how would it make them feel? Is it something that makes them feel just amazingly safe and kind to themselves? That's, but much less designing the email system itself, you know, just the text of it. So we kind of have to go back to some of the raw, you know, kind of raw stuff. You know, one of the things I love about uh, contemplative technology is cars, you know, you get in a car, all most cars now, you know, when you shut the door, the light kind of dims real slow, right? Uh, very beautiful little thing. And all a lot of cars do that now, but that was, that was a radical design transformation, you know, in the eighties when BMWs introduced that. So, it's, it, it's a good time to be a, a struggling artist in, in, in the theater of the mind. When we spoke last, we spoke about this thing. You brought up this phrase called big wisdom. And mm. I was on your show and I couldn't ask the questions. But mm. now you're on mine and I get to ask the questions. So I really would like for you to expand on this idea um, because I think it's linked to your other idea, this whole, I think, this whole thing called existence as a platform. Mm. Um, and so what is big wisdom to you and why is it so important? Uh, so, you know, the, uh, it's, the, the pyramid is data, information, knowledge, wisdom. Mm-hmm. And right now we're, we're obsessed with big data. Well, if you have enough data and you piece it together, you get some information. It's not real. It's just it, you, information that has to be proven. It's proven in the communities, and that's how you get to knowledge. When you have enough knowledge proven in communities, over time, you get wisdom. Um, so existence of the platform, 
thank you for pulling that up because that was like so long ago, but it's one of my favorite things I ever did was like, if you were to say, excuse me, if everything is programmable, you know, the quantified mm -hmm. self meets the internet of things and it all works together in concert. Is there a way to design someone so that the data is not important and the knowledge isn't important? I mean, and the information is important, but they really, the knowledge, which is an agreed upon uh, set of data and information that you all know is true, can help enlighten you or make you more aware of kind of the three marks of existence or, you know, the three immeasurable or the four immeasurables. And if the answer is that is yes, then what are those things? And that's where I kind of get into big wisdom. So how would you design a Wi-Fi lighting system that helps you understand the immeasurables of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity, right? Well, first, right, you probably wouldn't, you know, think too much around, you know, the actual system, you'd actually start to thinking about, well, what do people like about light? Well, they like it when it just works, right? So get rid of switches, right? Just, just turn on and go off. Right? We like lights like that. We get really frustrated if we go into a room with an automatic light and it doesn't come on. It's the tension is un unreal, right? Uh, you know what I'm talking about. It's like false yeah. right? Yeah, the tension is unreal, right? So, um, and then the thing is, you know, you want lights that just last forever. So you'd have to work on that kind of light bulb itself. Last. Like all of the lights in my house are all Wi-Fi. Uh, and the ones that aren't Wi-Fi are 20-year bulbs, right? I just don't want to think about lighting. And then, you know, so what are some ways you can start to work with that? So, you know, can lighting then produce or help you be more contemplative, right? So, you know, for me, all of the lights in my house, if it's going to rain that day, when I wake up, they just have a little bit of a blue because I can change the colors. They just You can make the light any color you want it to be. The lights behind me, I can flip this up. Those lights can be any color they want to be. I've got hundreds of bulbs like that in the house. You know, so just kind of an awareness of something outside of your own little, you know, snowflake world. So for me, weather's a good one. Um, lights that can actually react to news events, right? So is there something going on in your network or with your family? Or what I really like is the bigger population, right? So is there, has there been, you know, something massively affecting the population? You know, a little bit of a, a, a subtlety and a light around that or having a specific light that helps you go, oh, look, I'm not alone. There's a whole world out there suffering, right? So there are just beautiful things when you get to big wisdom that you can actually start to program for. Uh, to get you out of your head into the present moment and anonymity factors. Does that make sense? It does. It yeah. does. I know, that, was, that was great. Um, Chris, unfortunately, we've come to the end of the interview. Um, where can people find out more about you and your work? You can Google Most Connected Man, hopefully. I don't, you'll have to let me know if that works in England. Um, or you can just uh, chrisdancy.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter as at chrisdancy. Uh, FAQ is you know, Christianity, uh, and so it's, it's pretty easy. Um, or call me. I mean, I always tell people my phone number is on my website because I love talking to people. I get to grow. Like I get to feel challenged. And I get to feel uncomfortable. And that's there are days when that works real well for me, and there's days when it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to ask: Do you ever get trolled at all? Oh my gosh, I get more texts and phone calls and from people asking me, is the internet alive? And I had a time traveler two years ago who was stalking me saying that he was me from the future and he was going to kill me. I had to get the police involved. It's just, yeah, I get all sorts of weird stuff. It's, it's okay. 
It's, I mean, it entertains people, you know, at cocktail parties. <laughs> well, Chris Dancy, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Um, it was absolutely fascinating. And yeah, thank you so much for sharing your insight and your wisdom. Thanks, Lawrence. I appreciate it.